0: Welcome to Intangibles, a podcast about the traits, behaviors, and qualities that entrepreneurs can cultivate to help be successful. This podcast is created by Antecedent Ventures, an enterprise-focused seed-stage venture firm in New York City. You can find us at www.antecedent.vc. I'm your host, Steve Berg. This season is brought to you by Denton's Venture Technology Group at dentonsventurebeyond.com. Operating as a boutique within the world's largest law firm, the Venture Technology Group runs with hard charging tech entrepreneurs to drive growth through strategic business, finance, and legal advice from Silicon Valley and New York to London, Berlin, Hong Kong, and beyond. Learn more at Denton'sVentureBeyond.com. Today's topic is leadership. If leadership is not the most important quality that a founder can have to influence her or his success, it's right near the top of the list. To quote Vince Lombardi, leaders are made, they are not born. They are made by hard effort, which is the price that they must pay to achieve any goal that is worthwhile. I think that's good news for most of the people listening. It implies that we can study the tenets of great leadership and, if we're willing to put in the effort, continually get better. My guest today is Richard Clark. I don't think he needs an introduction, but just in case, he is the former National Coordinator for Security, Infrastructure, Protection, and Counterterrorism for the United States. These days, he's the best-selling author as well as the chairman of Good Harbor Consulting and Good Harbor International, two strategic planning and corporate risk management firms. Welcome, Mr. Clark.
1: It's good to be with you.
0: Is there anything I left out of your bio that you'd like to highlight?
1: No, I think if people want the full bio, they can go to the website, uh, richardaclark.net.
0: Perfect. All right, let me launch right in. You served as the, uh, in the administrations of four presidents, starting with Reagan in 85 and concluding with uh, George W. Bush in 2003. You've had a front row seat to leadership at the highest levels, not to mention a fair bit of leadership experience yourself. I think it was you who said, there's a wide chasm between good and great leadership. Let's start by defining great leadership in your view.
1: Well, I think great leaders are able to create great teams around them. Uh, and they're able to attract great tre- great teams to serve with them because they listen. Uh, they're intellectually curious. Uh, and they have a destination they want to go to. Uh, people who cannot attract great teams uh, – I don't think great leaders. I don't think great leaders can be an individual. I think, especially in, in modern day corporate settings and government settings, uh, people who achieve great outcomes can only do it together.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. You were interviewed in, uh, by Forbes um, several months ago. Uh, you mentioned some of the traits that you think are part of greater, great leadership, which included uh, motivational skill. Uh, the willingness to roll up your sleeves, and I'm paraphrasing on this one, but essentially grace under pressure. Uh, Is that your rank order in terms of the traits that leaders have?
1: Yeah, I think so. Uh, Look, leaders by definition uh, uh, are ones who get other people to do extra, uh, to do more than they would otherwise. Um, And to do that, you have to be motivational uh there are a variety of ways of doing that depending on the setting but the leader has to be able to get the teams and the troops uh to give that extra ounce of effort uh it has to be able to attract people to join the teams uh it has to be able to lay out a clear vision uh of where they're going and why it's important uh all of that comes down to motivation. And motivation frequently is being able to speak in front of groups and convey uh, that message. But you can't convey the message if you don't believe it. You have to believe it yourself. You have to understand it. You have to have thought of the way that message comes off with various audiences. Uh, and you have to speak to their needs and their desires and show them why they want to be part of it. Uh, I think that's the greatest requirement. But after that, yeah, I do think rolling up your sleeves, the ability to do some of the jobs that need to be done. Um, I led small organizations in the government, and I was blessed in that in every organization that I led, I had already been in it long enough to have done most of the jobs that I was asking other people to do. Uh, And when they went on vacation, uh, when they were traveling, uh, when they had a child and needed to, uh, to take some time off, I could step in uh, and do their jobs and did. Uh, and I think that that encourages people to know that it's a team effort and to know that you know what you're talking about uh, because you're, you know how to do their job as well. Uh, I think those are, those are all important skills if, if they work in your context.
0: Sure. And then, of course, I think Grisha Under Pressure is uh, fairly self-explanatory, although I would argue among the three that you've rank ordered, one, two, three, probably the hardest to do.
1: Well, no one knows if they have it or not until they're under pressure. Um, No one can uh, learn how to manage a crisis without managing one. Uh, I do a lot of tabletop exercises and and crisis simulations uh, for CEOs and corporate teams, and I try to make them as real as possible, uh, to make them sweat, to give them a stress test, uh, so that when they have a, a real crisis, it won't be their first one. But there's a, no matter how well I do that, and my team does that, there's always going to be a huge difference between a simulation of a crisis and a real crisis. And some people crack uh, in a real crisis, and you never know who that's going to be. Uh, some people just can't uh, take the pressure or the pace uh, because in a crisis, things are happening much more rapidly, by definition, uh, and you're getting deluged with information, uh, much of which is wrong. Uh, and so some people panic and, and don't know how to deal with it. it, uh, it it's a situation that where you don't really know how you will respond until it happens to you.
0: Yeah, great point about the velocity. Um, I'm, I'm guessing that your list is broader than the top three. You actually mentioned curiosity um, any other behaviors, integrity, humility, charisma, that jump to mind that are, you know, you'd put on as maybe four, five, six?
1: Well, I, I think honesty, uh, whether you whether that's the same as integrity or not, uh, it's pretty close. Uh, I think no one wants to work with an organization or a leader uh, that they think is a little uh, slimy, a little cutting the edges here and there. Uh, I think the... The, the leader who admits their own errors, uh, the leader who is frank with them about the situation, uh, has a better response from the team. Because, you know, it's like when you have kids. You don't tell them things. You don't want them to know what's going on, perhaps. They always know. Uh, they, can, they can pick it up uh, in the family situation. And teams working together in government or uh, in the corporate sector – They can always pick it up. Uh, They know when there's something going wrong, and you just have to be honest with them about it.
0: Yeah, even my eight-year-old knows exactly what's going on, regardless of how much information he gets from me. Uh, (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Um, You can't can't hide it. No, you can't. Uh, The first book that I ever bought that you wrote was Against All Enemies. Uh, Besides being an accounting of the actions um, taken in the war on terrorism— and in particular 9/11 during the George Bush administration, I'm sorry the George W. Bush administration, um, I think it's an instructive manual on some of the pitfalls of leaders. If we ignore political leanings as much as possible for just a moment, um, one of the things that stands out to me is the importance of leaders to identify what is signal and what is noise, and I know you were just touching on that a moment ago. If you could talk a little bit about the mechanisms for that and the impact on optimal decision-making of being able to do that, that'd be great.
1: Well, what I found interesting in in looking at three or four presidents I worked closely with uh, is their interest in outside sources of information. Uh, Were they just taking what we were serving up to them, which I hoped was good, uh, or if not great information, uh, but were they also going outside the normal channels uh, to... uh, maintain contact with people outside the government, to step outside the bubble, as it were, uh, and also to be able to reach experts uh, that we hadn't talked to. Uh, The thing about Bill Clinton that always amazed me is I would go in to brief him on something that I would assume he knew nothing about, um, but he would have seen that uh, item on his schedule a couple of days ahead, uh, and he would have started reading on his own about it. Uh, and he'd stay up until two and three in the morning, sometimes reading and calling people around. Uh, and so by the time I walked in to brief him, he frequently knew more than I did. Uh, that gave me, that upped my game as a staff member. Uh, I had to work harder. I had to be better, uh, because he was doing it too. Uh, and if I were uh, really going to add value, I needed to go the extra mile.
0: Um, I've met him once and I, I'm astounded by the amount of information that he can keep in his head. So I, I, I exactly, I, I know exactly what you're putting your finger on when you, when you talk about that.
1: But there was a problem with that though, which I, I, I learned occasionally to, uh, to my, uh, great pain, which is he also never forgets. Uh, and so if you've given him a briefing on something six months later, uh, he still remembers that vividly. Well, six months later, it may no longer be true, <laughs> and you'll discover if a question pops up in a public setting, uh, he will recall that file. He had a he had a visual eidetic memory, and he would see the briefing memo and he would just spout it back six months later or a year later, uh, and it might be wrong by then. So, what we learned was we had to keep him up to date on anything we had ever briefed him on.
0: That's. Amazing. You're basically talking about when the symbol, be- the signal becomes noise. Um, right. Exactly. <laughs> who, would exactly. Oh, who would have guessed that that is a problem? Um, yep. our, I, I'm particularly fond of the Oscar Wilde quote um, that goes, it is personalities, not principles that move the age. Now, the G.W. Bush administration contained a lot of strong personalities, including Dick Cheney, Donald Rumsfeld, Paul uh, Wolfowitz, and and others. How much and you, you know you were talking about picking the right team, so you know what kind of a balance of skill set does the right team need in your mind so that it's not all strong personalities?
1: Well, I thought when that team was announced that it was a great team, uh, and I looked forward to working with them. Um, And I did enjoy working with them for about a month until I realized what was going on. Uh, The problem with them, frankly, was that uh, they were teams within teams. Uh, They weren't really all on the same team. Uh, Cheney and Rumsfeld had their own little channel, uh, and they excluded the national security advisor uh, from those discussions. Um, Rumsfeld, who was the Secretary of Defense, Disdained Condi Rice, the national security advisor, uh, talked about her behind her back as an intern, wouldn't attend her meetings, uh, didn't take her process seriously. Uh, you can't have that sort of thing uh, in a team of you know, eight to ten, nine or ten uh, national security leaders. They all have to be on the same team. There can be factions, but they all have to play in the same system. Uh, and they have to accept the roles given to the other players by the team captain. Uh, President Bush made Condi Rice the national security advisor. Maybe she wasn't terribly experienced for that job, but she was a national security advisor. And either uh, Rumsfeld and Cheney uh, should have played in the system that she ran, or she should have quit.
0: Right. So, so in my mind, you've highlighted two things. Too, too many alphas. And also not enough um, enforcement by the top um, in making sure that the process was um, being adhered to so that the u- outcomes could be, you know, could be the outcomes that the process should have generated.
1: And not enough awareness. I, I really don't think President Bush knew uh, how dysfunctional uh, the Principals committee was. Principals committee is all the national security leaders except the president and vice president. And it's the the chief operating committee, if you will. It meets maybe twice, three times uh, a week on a whole host of national security issues. And the, f- the process just broke down because two of the key players were not uh, really participating in it.
0: Mm. Was there a scalar personality that you identify that if, had they added um, to that team could have improved it?
1: Well, I, I thought the best national security manager I ever saw was Robert Gates. Uh, And oddly, not when he was secretary of defense, although he was a great secretary of defense uh, and everyone recognizes that. But I actually thought his best performance was when he was the deputy national security advisor, because the deputies committee, which is one layer down, meets every day. Uh, And people trudge over to the White House from the Pentagon, the State Department, the CIA, the Justice Department, and they go through maybe a half dozen issues a day. That's where decision making should take place. Hmm. Very few things should bubble up to the president. Um, when Bob Gates ran the deputies committee, he would walk in and he would begin by reading the conclusion of the meeting on whatever the topic was. And at first I thought that was offensive. I mean you know, it's presumptuous. But he would say, Now look, this is where I think we're going to come out. And let's just focus on where it's wrong and that'll save time. Uh, And it did save time. It saved enormous amounts of time. It moved us quickly uh, to a consensus. People were able to say, no, no, you got that element wrong. Uh, But it, it showed us a way to get through the issue without a lot of posturing. Uh, And people really appreciated it. Uh, When there was a need for discussion, discussion would occur. But when there wasn't, we didn't have to have it just for the sake of having it.
0: Yeah, I think there's a big difference between saying this is the decision we're going to reach and this is the conclusion I think we're going to reach.
1: Yeah, this is the conclusion I think we're going to reach based on my briefing of all of your positions uh, and my understanding of the facts and tell me where it's wrong and let's focus on that rather than going through the whole thing. Let's, Let's find out where we have common ground, put that aside, save that, and where we're still, you know, things that are in contention, let's spend the meeting on that.
0: Yeah, that's great. Um, another big thing that struck me in the Against All Enemies book was the amount of, uh, and you you were touching about this, you just started to, personal bias and emotion that was part of the decision process. Um, I know, you know, in my questions that I've got prepared, I think I would like to talk about data decision, data-driven decision-making kind of in a few minutes but if we could spend a moment on the negative impact of allowing too much emotion into decision making, uh, that I think that's an important uh, thing to draw out for, you know, when we think about leadership.
1: Well, you, you obviously want leaders that have emotion because emotion is the fuel uh, that they need uh, to power them uh, and through all the, the long hours and the extra work and all of that. But emotion can also cloud analysis. Uh, and it can give you preconceived uh, prejudices and preconceived outcomes. Uh, and, and they're deadly. Uh, because what you're trying to do in, in any leadership role uh, is scan the horizon uh, and try to understand the facts and try to predict the future, frankly. Uh, and that's very hard to do uh, if you have the blinders on of, uh, of, of biases. We all have cognitive biases, but we we don't recognize that sometimes when we're working hard at our job. We don't stop and say, oh, gee, what are my cognitive biases? Uh, but we we really need to yeah, uh, because otherwise we miss the key facts when things change.
0: Yeah, and if we know them, then we can take into account what those biases might be. Um, exactly. So I'm going to switch books to uh, Your Government Failed You. Uh, Certainly, this is a discussion of historical events, but in my context, I think it's a discussion about complacency, uh, partisanship, and bloat within our management systems, particularly as they relate to terrorism, climate change, and cybersecurity. Um, Was the book at the time, or maybe is it now, a commentary on the future of the democratic system? And And by the way, what do you think is the future of democracy?
1: Well, I don't think uh, your government failure is so much about democracy as it is about bureaucracy. Uh, it's about uh, the the growth of bureaucracy uh, and, the, frankly, the private sector um, companies that leech off the government uh, with government contracts uh, and about the natural tendency uh, of the government to uh solve problems by throwing money and people at them rather than uh, really thinking about what the problems are and coming up with a tailored solution. Um, as to as to democracy, uh, democracy in the United States. I know right now we think it doesn't work um, as well as it has in the past, uh, but I'm not sure that's right. I, I you know I think this last election, whether or not you like the outcome, uh, reflected real, uh, sentiment, uh, in the population, uh, that just hadn't had a, uh, uh, a way of coming out before. Uh, I think going into the next two sets of elections in 18 and 20, uh, I think both parties are going to be a little bit more, uh, aware uh, of what sentiments are driving uh, large blocks of the electorate rather than assuming uh, a sort of an identity politics uh, way of, uh, of treating people. Um, democracy beyond our own borders, I think, has to be tailored to the country. Uh, you know, the, the George W. Bush administration, after 9-11, became a big advocate of democracy in the Middle East. And they actually said, Uh, If we can turn these Arab countries into democracies, uh, then terrorism will not grow there. I never understood where they got that logic, because I'm not sure that's ever been demonstrated. But it's also not clear that you can turn a country into a democracy overnight. Now, we maybe did that in Japan, uh, and to some extent Germany, uh, by occupying them at enormous cost. And maybe that's what people had in mind with Iraq. Uh, But really, democracy has to, whatever form of democracy you end up with, it has to be homegrown. And it can't be imposed from outside. I think the the Arab countries need to tailor their own forms of consensual government. It may not be traditional democracy. uh, And it probably won't look like European democracy. Uh, Why should it?
0: Yeah. Um, In your mind, I'm staying with your government failed you for a moment. In, In your mind, how much ownership for any discrete events and the responses to those events should be assigned to the specific person in the Oval Office at the time? And how much responsibility should be assigned to the bureaucracy that we as citizens have put in place? Which by design, is slow and methodical.
1: Well, I think ultimately uh, for big national decisions the president makes, the president should uh, should take ownership of those decisions. Uh, the decision to go into Iraq in 2003, that was entirely an optional decision. And that was not something that uh, inevitably was going to happen. and was not something that we needed to do. Uh, so, Occasionally, there are those decisions where it comes down to the president, Uh, and the bureaucracy may or may not have done a good job serving up the decision. But they're not to blame uh, because ultimately the president and only the president can make those kinds of calls, and he or she uh, should really be uh, the one who does the diligence. If the bureaucracy has done a bad job, they ought to know that. They ought to figure that out. Uh, Barack Obama spent enormous amounts of time uh, doing diligence on questions like, should we send more troops to Afghanistan? Uh, Meeting after meeting after meeting, asking questions, asking more questions, more analysis, sending people back uh, to do their homework. Uh, He was not making that decision lightly, and he really didn't go into that discussion uh, with the preconceived notion about what the outcome was. Hmm. That's the kind of thing a president should do. I happen to think he made the wrong decision, but that's okay. The process the process was right.
0: Right. Well, so the, you know, how can we, being citizens, influence our leaders or how our leaders lead and maybe moreover influence the ability of our democracy as it stands to be more agile and more responsive to these things so that we can get to better decisions.
1: Well, I think exposing facts. Uh, And people think, oh, well, that's the job of journalists, uh, and it is, uh, or that's the job of congressional hearings. Uh, It is, but they almost never get there. Uh, Congress has as one of its responsibilities oversight. They do a terrible job on it. Uh, But I think exposing facts is the best way uh, to influence outcomes. Uh, exposing them and getting them publicized. And social media allows you to do that uh, in a way that the, uh, the average citizen didn't have uh, 10 or 15 years ago.
0: Mm-hmm. I think there's also an onus on the citizens themselves to actually seek out those facts and know those facts in, in terms of their decision choice.
1: And actually be sure that they're facts, uh, which means asking the follow-up question, looking at the sourcing uh, and getting multiple sources uh, and not just listening to your own people. Yeah, I agree.
0: Okay, this is the exciting part for me. I'm moving on to uh, Warnings, which is your latest book. And from my perspective as a technology geek, the one that I find more uh, most interesting of all of them so far, um, before I ask a question, uh, let me tell everyone who likes this podcast that they need to read Warnings. It'll make your head explode. It's fantastic. Um, okay, Why don't you just give a quick explanation of what a Cassandra is and based on that, how you've laid out this book?
1: Well, my co-author and I, R.P. and I, um, two years ago, were sitting around and and said, do you ever notice how after every big disaster or catastrophe, there's an investigation and they find the woman or the man who in advance of the event said it was going to happen and they were ignored. And we said, yeah, you know, that's kind of like what happened to Cassandra uh, in Greek mythology. She was cursed by the gods. uh, And the curse was that she could see the future accurately. Sounds like a good thing. But when she told anybody about an impending disaster, she was ignored. And her inability to stop those disasters drove her crazy. Uh, So Cassandra in Greek mythology was prescient and right. Uh, So we started looking. uh, We we made a list of the last 20 years or so of major disasters that we knew about. And we started looking in each case to see, was there always somebody like that? And almost always there was. And so the question we asked ourselves was, if we can find these people, these experts, uh, these data-driven experts, not People who wake up in the middle of the night with a premonition. Uh, But if we can find these experts after the fact, why can't we find them before the fact? And if we find them before the fact, could we prevent or at least mitigate the disaster? That's what this this book is about. It's about 14 people who fit that category.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Now, I want to set the stage uh, as to where my next questions are coming from and at the same time kind of admit my own biases. Um, I'm a uh, very big on data-driven and process-driven decision-making. As a VC, I'm pro-technological innovation as a driver of quality of life, longevity, and improvement of the human condition. And I do believe... That progress is inevitable with regard to AI, uh, genomics, Internet of Things on both sides, the good for humanity and the not for, so good for humanity side. Um, so with that in mind, I've always thought that government is a drag on innovation, which is bad, meaning, you know, they're slow to get there. They don't fully understand it. Um, and except,
1: then, when, except when they fund it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, for example, in the creation of the Internet, certainly yes, right? Um,
1: space, space exploration, a few other things.
0: The question is, do you think that the deliberate pace with which the government reacts to new technology might actually be a good thing? Because it gives more time to identify and react to the Sentinel events?
1: Well, sometimes government just uh, lets technology go running so far ahead uh, that it, it doesn't know enough about the technology, uh, until it's too late, until uh, there are negative sides to it. Uh, that's normally the case. I think, um, you say, well, government, when government does get involved, it slows things down. Yes, it does. But very often it doesn't get involved, uh, for a very long time because it's just, it's not clear who's in charge within the government. Uh, and there is over the last 20 or so years, Uh, There's been a great reluctance on the part of the government to get in the way of technology and progress. Great reluctance on the part of the government to regulate. Uh, I know people find that hard to believe because there's a lot of government regulation. But it's very, very hard nowadays uh, to get a government regulation, a new one. Uh, So new technologies pop up and they run forward. And the government doesn't usually do much about it. Uh, and that's sometimes okay because it allows for innovation, but it's sometimes bad um, because the government could have said something simple and smart early on that would save us all a lot of pain and money and sometimes disaster. I'm thinking of the Internet of Things uh, as an example. There's a chapter in the book, Warnings, about the Internet of Things. Uh, There's a time right now when we're exploding, the Internet of Things. Uh, It's very quiet. You don't see it by looking out your window. Uh, But we're going from um, a handful of Internet connected to devices, maybe four or five billion, not a handful, but a small number, to probably 30 billion uh, in a matter of a few years. Uh, Lots of things are being connected. Uh, And that will be a problem because no one is requiring those things that are being connected, uh, to have any uh, security designed in. After the fact, they'll try to glom on security. But if you don't design it in from the beginning, it usually doesn't work very well. Uh, There will be problems. There are already starting to be problems uh, where people are going after these security flaws in the Internet of Things and, and creating small amounts of chaos. I think it'll get bigger. All government had to do at the beginning of this process was recognize that the trend was going on and say to industries, various industries, uh, you should get together and talk about this. You should have security designed in from the beginning. You should set standards and imply that if you don't, we will, Uh, but at least be the convener. Uh, that gets people together to recognize that they're forgetting something because market forces don't require them to put security in. Market forces get uh, get them going first to market, a first mover advantage, but they don't require them to worry about the downstream negative effects.
0: Right. So, I mean, this is your, your, your comments of timing about perfect, right? Early in the process versus later. Uh, proactive versus reactive, and that ends up changing the amount of risk, uh, potential consequences, uh, the opportunity for some of these disasters um, that you're, you know, that could potentially occur, as you've written about, um, to be to be mitigated,
1: right? Right, and and not to be terribly prescriptive about it, uh, and not to think that the expertise resides in the government. Convene people. Uh, get people sitting around the table, make sure that people who are making decisions in industry have actually heard about the risks uh, in a way that is convincing, if, if, if that's possible, uh, so that they understand the, the, the need for uh, doing something, and then they come up with a way that makes uh, sense to them to design the security in from the beginning. Uh, that's a very different approach than traditional regulation, but I think it's the only approach that can work.
0: Right. And, and so this goes back to the last set of questions. Can we, can we actually expect a government that can do that?
1: Uh, in some parts of the government, there are organizations that can do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you're trying to get new technologies, uh, to, to harness new technologies and to do something that looks like regulation, right now it's it's exceedingly hard.
0: Yeah. So you touched on IoT. One of the ones uh, when I was reading was fascinating to me was the discussion of AI. And um, my question on that one in particular, without diving into every single one of them, is, um, so you've established this Cassandra Award, and that is to be able to call out Cassandras in advance. Um, Isn't AI, isn't mature AI um, going to essentially become its own Cassandra?
1: You would hope uh, that that, uh, if you programmed it to uh, that uh, mature AI could do this function uh, that we're talking about. But there's no one in the government uh, that has the responsibility and no one in society that has the responsibility of scanning the horizon right now for potential Cassandra events. Uh, And we think there ought to be. And that's why we're in the absence of the government doing it. We're establishing an annual award Uh, You can hear about that, read about that by going to uh, findingcassandras.net. We're doing that so that people will think about this phenomenon. But yeah, I suppose if you programmed um, a very advanced AI, one that we probably don't have yet uh, the capability for, uh, it could see connections that perhaps the humans were not seeing and therefore see risks um, that humans didn't see.
0: One of the things I particularly liked about the book was you did your best to incorporate kind of surveys and percentage chances of certain things happening based on the best and the brightest and, you know, their current state of thinking, um, which kind of gives you, you know, you you don't necessarily want to just walk away thinking gloom and doom. You want to think about the uh, spectrum of possibility, you know, some percentage of that being gloom and doom
1: yeah, and one of the things we suggest for decision makers is that if uh, if you find a Cassandra uh, and they come in and they present, and almost all of these Cassandras are outliers. Uh, they're an expert, and everyone recognizes they've previously accomplishments uh, in in that field, they've had them, but now they're saying something that is a minority view. Mm. Well, so if you find that person, uh, and you listen to their data and people can't really say that there's anything wrong with their data. Uh, because by the way, all of the Cassandras we interviewed used the same sentence to us. It was very odd. They said, I hope I'm wrong. Here's my data. I ask other experts, show me what's wrong with my data. So if, you, if you're the decision maker and you've had that experience with Cassandra, uh The only path out of this is not just to say, okay, fine, I agree with you. I'm going to give you the resources. I'm going to change everything we're doing. There's another path out. And the other path out is to put that issue under surveillance uh, and to keep updating the data and see where that data is trending and see if more experts are coming around to their conclusion. Uh, And it's a surveillance strategy. It's also a hedging strategy where you start beginning to do planning, you know, relatively inexpensively, start beginning to do planning on what would happen, what would you have to do if it turned out that the Cassandra was right. Uh, we we talked to Jim Hansen in the book about the sea level rise. He's the, the great planet uh, uh, climate expert at Columbia. And when we interviewed him, Uh, Very few people thought he was right about sea level rise, because rather than taking the UN model that says it'll rise by a meter uh, by 2100, he was saying it would rise by six meters, maybe even nine meters globally, sea level rise. And he was very much an outlier. Had a decision maker when we interviewed him put that issue under surveillance, they would by now be seeing more and more and more experts moving to his side. He's no longer the the only outlier saying this, uh, and seeing that trend in the data, seeing that trend in the experts, I think you would put more and more resources into the hedging strategy of planning for that outcome.
0: Yeah, when you started, just when you were uh, you mentioned that. I, I hope I'm wrong, but that that particular story immediately jumped to mind and particularly how the experts were saying, well, look, here's the data. And he said, no, I can't use that data because, you know, that implies that this is happening at this rate and, and it's not happening at this rate. Um, so that, which I mean, that really brings me to the last prepared question that I have, which is this data-driven decision-making. Um, I'd like to get your thoughts about it in context of what we talked about, the signal and noise of identifying leaders with this particular skill set and also uh, what we do with imperfect information, because that's, you know, decision-making under imperfect uh, information seems, is really just the norm.
1: No, I think that's right. Everybody wants to make data-driven decisions, but the question is, are you asking the follow-on questions? Uh, Are you asking about the reliability of the data? Uh, the way it was collected, the way it was analyzed. Has anybody else looked at this data and come to a different conclusion based on the data? Uh, are there other uh, data sets? Are there uh, data sets that, that somebody thinks we should be taking into account that uh, were not, uh, that uh, are tangential? Uh, you know, I'm always reminded of, uh, in my business, uh, Colin Powell testifying before the UN Security Council about the Iraqi weapons of mass destruction. Uh, He was dubious. Uh, He was given a speech, a draft speech, uh, by Dick Cheney's office. And he didn't just read it. He took it, drove up to CIA, spent two days at CIA with the analysts, with the experts, around the table. Went through the speech line by line, saying, what's the evidence of that? What's the source for that? And when they got to, for example, uh, Iraq has biological weapons in they're develop, developing them in mobile laboratories, he said, what's the evidence for that? And they said, West German intelligence. Here's the report. And he said, okay, fine, and moved on. He didn't ask the follow-up question. Where did West German intelligence get that story? If he had, he would have learned that it was a source that had no access to to the information. Uh, It was a source who had been given past information that had proven to be wrong. And it was a source who had a political axe to grind. He didn't ask the follow-up question. And so it's fine to be data-driven, but don't just be satisfied because you have data in front of you. Uh, If it's an important decision, really test the data. Ask the follow-up question. Yeah. Do
0: you think you had mentioned um, the eighteen and twenty elections? Do you think that we will be able to identify as an electorate, be able to identify and prioritize leaders with the skill set of data-driven decision making?
1: No, no. Uh, that that's that's never anything I think that voters look for. Uh, most voters. Um, I, I'm hoping that with the 18 and 20 elections one thing we'll be able to do is at least identify interference you know now that we know that there was interference in the last election foreign interference in the last election now we'll be looking for it you know in the book warnings one of the things we talk about that's a barrier to getting uh, decisions right is when you're talking about something that's never happened before right and we use the fancy term first occurrence syndrome Uh, I think we had in the last election first occurrence syndrome where for the first time uh, a foreign government was trying to manipulate uh, our perceptions prior to an election by manipulating social media news feeds. It was the first time when anyone had tried to do that. Well, that's not surprising. Having large percentages of our population getting news through social media – is a relatively new phenomenon. Uh, and there was no way designed into that system to monitor and detect and prevent uh, foreign manipulation. Uh, now I think that could be. Uh, and Facebook is, uh, I think, making some progress in that direction. Uh, so when I think of the of the next couple of elections, uh, I'm hoping at least that we're looking for data uh, relevant to, uh, to what happened the last time. Uh, which is foreign interference, not just the hacking, but the uh, psychological warfare uh, shaping the perceptions of the voters through micro-targeting and using false identities uh, and false information.
0: Mm. But what you're talking about is a decision that is based on the the same decision methodology of the electorate and just cleaner data to make that decision. I guess... (laughs) Uh, Hope of hopes. I was hoping that we would actually evolve our thinking and, you know, away from the, we just want to have a beer with this guy to, hey, we want someone who's going to be, you know, looking out for the majority of us.
1: I I wish you were right. Uh, I'm I'm enough of a realist, I think, to say that you're probably not.
0: Yeah, me too. I think you're right, too. Um, All right. That's the last uh, prepared question. Before we close, is there anything else that you'd like to add? Well,
1: I I think we're talking about leadership today, and I I think leadership works only for a given period of time. One of the things that we all need to think about uh, when we're leaders or when we're following leaders is whether the great contribution that that leader can make has been made uh, and whether they need to move on. Uh, I think I spent too long uh, running our counterterrorism program. Uh, I think if I had left earlier, well, when the Clinton administration ended, uh, there might have been a better outcome uh, because the Bush administration would have had somebody running terrorism that they might have believed more. Uh, so I think for all leaders, you need to understand you come on board uh, and you infuse uh, energy and you turn the ship uh, and, and you move it forward. But you can only do that for so long. Uh, and uh, then you need to go recharge your batteries. And it's hard to recharge your batteries when you're running that hard.
0: Mm. Uh, that's a decent place uh, to conclude on because in my mind, I think that actually is kind of a fresh take, um, which is what you're advocating. Um, so where, where yeah, I, you've mentioned a couple of websites, but let's make a rundown. Where should the listeners find you and find more information?
1: They can go. They can go to RichardAClark and that will get you to all the Cassandra uh, sites, the Cassandra Award, and the and the. You'll be able to read a lot of the book for free uh, at that site. Uh, we have a teaser for every chapter, I think, uh, so you can start out every chapter. Of course, you can't finish them without buying the book.
0: Bonus, and I know I happen to know that there's actually also information on some of the prior books, which I mean I know Warnings is the new thing, but anybody who hasn't read the other ones should definitely be picking those up, too, because there's a lot, uh, you know, even though they're historical in nature, uh, I think that there's a lot that uh, you can pull out of them for what's going on today, every single
1: one of them. Yeah, we have we have large uh, excerpts from all of the books at the yeah. website.
0: Yeah, and of course on Amazon as well, right. Okay, uh, Mr. Clark, let's end here. Thank you very much for your time. Uh, I think this it's such an informed insight. It's such a uh, pleasure being able to talk to you.
1: Well, I enjoyed it very much. I hope uh, hope your listeners did too. I think
0: they will. Uh, mind-blowing stuff. Thanks so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Cheers, bye. This has been Intangibles, a podcast created by Antecedent Ventures. Find out more at www.antecedent.vc. I'd like to thank Denton's Venture Technology Group at dentonsventurebeyond.com for being the sponsor this season and a supportive partner. Operating as a boutique within the world's largest law firm, the Venture Technology Group runs with hard-charging tech entrepreneurs to drive growth through strategic business, finance, and legal advice from Silicon Valley and New York to London, Berlin, Hong Kong, and beyond. Learn more at DentonsVentureBeyond.com. I'd also like to thank Ben Glauwe, who's been instrumental in helping me record and produce this season. I couldn't have done it without him. Find him on Twitter at visible underscore sound and thank you keep an eye out for the next episode and if you like this one leave us a favorable review i'm your host steve berg